You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Joining us right here on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network for another Land and Legacy podcast devoted to habitat and land management. Yes, sir, it is. This is your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are going to break down film number two, just released yesterday, Monday, whatever day that is, the 7th of yep. May, 2018, um, that kind of covered the adventure of Mississippi, and uh, there's a lot of habitat, land stuff that we covered while we were down there, some hunting mixed in, even though it didn't kind of feel like hunting Was sometimes. Hunting? I, thought, I, I, I thought we were just on a hike. Hike. We were birders. Birding. We were Listening birding. to the spring mornings. Um, and so anyway, we have a lot to cover um, and break down this film and discuss in more detail the things that we covered briefly during the film. And this week's podcast is brought to you by... Who's it brought to you by? Pure Air Natives. Yeah. As you guys have probably gathered by now, we love our natives. We do. And we love native grasses and wildflowers and all that wonderful stuff. So if you're looking to buy some or plant some and improve the habitat on your place, check out Pure Air Natives. Yes, sir. Hey, I know we've talked about it, but since the last podcast... We made mention of the review tab on Facebook. Oh, they blew us up. Blew us up, man. I'm like flatter. Here's flatter, the thing. Blushing. Five stars. They uh, gave uh, us five stars. Yeah. Can you believe I it? only had to delete two of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those totally are the one stars? <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I didn't delete any. But um, I'm going to give a little bit of a thing away here. But we have uh, some apparel coming soon. Oh. And we're so excited to share it with you guys. And like never seen before stuff. Yeah, some really really cool stuff. Hopefully everybody enjoys it. Some new f kind of feature. I don't know if feature is the right word, but some things about it 
that is probably a little bit different that you may not expect. Hopefully you will expect it after you hear us talk so much about it. Um, but yeah, there's going to be stuff coming. So that's why it's important to keep, keep making reviews yep. and commenting because you never know when we're going to pick one of you and say, hey, we're going to send a hat your way. Thanks for following and, and sharing the stuff. So that's why you should be we're, – we're really watching because as we get more hats and shirts coming – we see people sharing the content and liking the comment and commenting. Interacting is the right word. And uh, those people that we see that kind of pop up more and more, we may just out of the blue shoot you a message and like say, the price is right. Come on down. Send us an address. We're going to yeah. send you some stuff. So anyway, hopefully you guys will keep leaving reviews, uh, both on Facebook and on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever you're listening, and uh, on the Sportsman's Nation podcast um, network tab on itunes go check it out and leave us a review over there um anyway did you read one of the reviews matt i think i read them all but there now, was one, now you're making me question with there's that look one on today your face. because there's a, okay. there's a couple phrases that we oh used. yeah i did read that one that's hilarious so they they they've apparently caught on so we're gonna make but, a whole podcast without saying it do you think you can do that i'm, go, I'm gonna I ask you think, the same question i don't think you can <laughs> Um, cause I know that the second one wasn't, isn't used nearly as much as the first one, but used often, used often, but not nearly as much. How about that? That tells you how much the other one was used. But anyway, okay. so we're headed to Mississippi down South. And this film, as you saw, I grew up going, watching all kinds of hunting videos based yeah. out of, out of, uh, Mississippi. So it was kind of like a I don't know, it was a something a long time coming where it's like, man, I want to go I want to go hunt. You just want to experience those things, you know, the yeah. things that got you into the outdoors. But doggone it wasn't anything like, <laughs> like the movies. <laughs> but yeah. uh anyway, we still had a great time, but so getting back on track here, um headed to Mississippi on a turkey hunt with our friend Kyle Bennett. Yeah. And his father, and we are in not far from the Mississippi River. Yep. Um, very pretty part of Mississippi. And uh, we were chasing birds. Somewhat. <laughs> Somewhat. <laughs> the, and that's the thing. We had expectations from um, watching the, these films from way back when growing up, um, whether it was Primos or, or Mossy Oak videos way back when, and, and just watching those guys be successful um, and harvesting birds down the deep south in the swamps and in the pine plantations um, and the oak flats. But we got down there, and for me, I'd spent time in the south quite a bit just from, from growing up in Virginia and traveling um, down quite a bit. But that portion of the south was gorgeous. I, like big plantations. Vicksburg area. Yeah, massive trees, um, old-growth pines that – and that that's very um, tough to see because a lot of areas have been cut, but this farm or this property um, plantation, as you call them down there, hadn't been in many areas. So being able to see that and witness that and just experiencing the spring time down there was a treat. Yeah, oh, for sure. It was March 20-something. 23rd, so 4th, 5th. It was greening up. Dogwoods mm -hmm. and redbuds were blooming down there. And then we came home, and we just now started seeing that. Or 
the dogwoods are in full bloom right, right now. The red buds just finished up. So that's how far ahead they are yes. compared to us. Almost a, uh, it was a month, mm-hmm. uh, a month difference. So we got to experience spring a lot sooner by going south. That's one of my favorite parts. Uh, we can chase turkeys when we can't chase turkeys in Missouri for a while. And so we were headed down there with high expectations. Um, but as we always do, even though we were hunting, we were still checking out the property. And there was a lot to learn on this property and a lot of improvement that could be made. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that was the thing, like Mississippi, throughout the state, they open up at, at March 15th. And we we're going down there a week after. The birds hadn't been um, hunted prior to us arriving. But we still knew um, we are going to be facing early season birds. We knew from what Kyle had said, hey, these are these are pretty tough birds to hunt. Um, be aware of that. You guys are coming in at a time where it might make it a little bit more tough, but um, schedules just you know said that that's when we're available. Let's let's schedule it for that weekend. Um, but we heard birds on the roost, but after I guess the first morning, but after that, like no gobbles, nothing. No. Um, so there's no they point. They turned into your classic southern birds, from what yeah. I'm told. Right, right. I've hunted I've hunted Alabama and Mississippi now, and and they both acted very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, tough hard-headed just didn't gobble real well but you know one of the biggest difference and folks i promise you we're going to get to a lot of habitat and land stuff later on in this podcast but first part is we're going to talk about the hunting um, because that was kind of the first part of the film but um you know i've I've watched and everybody said southern birds are tough but it seems like and i know it is but there's so much more humidity down there and Mm -hmm. up here is always on a this morning uh, might have been my last hunt here in Missouri. Um, uh, uh, and yesterday morning, too. Was both very, very humid. humid, and the birds just didn't gobble very mm-hmm. well. It seems like humidity has a, has a lot to do with uh, gobbling conditions, and certainly uh, they didn't gobble real well in Mississippi. First morning, we heard some. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you compare it to some of the mornings we've had now in Missouri, it wasn't even it's, it's close. It's light years in the gobbling um, sense of things. And, and it might sound like we're, we're ragging on it, but not at all because that was, I mean, that's what part of the allure of, of killing a, a deep South bird is, is that they're tough. You know, they don't, they don't play, um, like these Missouri birds do sometimes. And since we are so just land, I guess, dominating the way we think, um, and just the, the aspect and, and enjoyment of just being outside, seeing that country and spending time with with kyle and his dad was just a blast and i think in the video it um shows just some of the the times we were cutting up in the field just giving each other a hard time um about the hunting conditions that obviously kyle nor his dad um have any control over but i mean that's just that's just fun like that's just camp life um and it was just a blast to be able to enjoy that with with zach you and and kyle and his dad at in, in that camp Oh, um, so sweet. Yeah, so sweet. Uh, I know you didn't mean it, but um, that's okay. I think that's kind of one of the important things about hunting with good friends and, and new friends is mm-hmm. the fact that regardless of what happens, you can still have a great time. Oh, And yeah. so we had fantastic food, <laughs> um, and we had fantastic camaraderie and friendship and conversations, and even though the birds weren't cooperating real well, uh, it didn't matter. We were still having a blast. and. I- 
You had a couple good sleeps too, didn't you? I Did had a couple really good tree. sleeps. I, I don't know why that's news. <laughs> is, I mean, is any sleep bad? I guess is that's any the sleep question. bad? And is Adam ever gonna not get sleep at some point in the woods? No, <laughs> the answer is always no. At some point, you're gonna see me with my head somewhere sleeping. So, I definitely got in a nice nap that afternoon and the next morning and all the other hunts we had. So, um, that that's just beside the fact. So, um, the only turkey hunt we came home from and weren't sleep deprived. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm always sleep deprived. So, um, anyway, so the turkey hunting first morning didn't work out too well, but we started getting a feel for the property. Yes. And the property is, I don't remember how many acres here, but, um, 350 on the, the property that they own. Yes. Um, surrounded by, or not, not completely surrounded, on, but on two to it's three got sides. quite a bit of a hunt club close to yeah. it that they hunt on, but most, almost all the management is done on the home turf on their farm and that's where we really hunted the first morning and so we were getting a good feel for what the habitat was like and as you mentioned earlier there was a lot of old growth timber both pine and oaks and and hardwoods man there were some humongous massive trees oaks in there and i think we shared a couple pictures Mm -hmm. um there's one of us that i remember the kind of like the roots going into the ground at was almost like little cubby holes that we got back in there with the with the uh, rattlesnakes and and uh, <laughs> set up for a few pictures. So um, it definitely has this old timber on it, and that's a big part of as you see later on in the film, um, part of the management on um, the Bennett farm. And and we talk since we're regionally located, right? Midwest um, pine plantations is not a topic that comes up, I guess, a lot for us. And we, we try and incorporate and work it in. But in this film and in this podcast specifically, we have the ability to talk about them, highlight them, and showcase them in, in a visual aspect um, and, and get into the pluses and the minuses. And it's specifically on this farm, they had four different stages of basically what a pine plantation can be to some degree and i think that was an incredible representation for people to understand and see the differences and quality of habitat among each one um that was a great a great point that we could make and and showcase on the film yeah totally um and and i think when you look in for me when you go south it's always pine plantation that's just something that we almost always I would almost venture to say 90% of the time we go to a farm in the south, there's a pine plantation somewhere. Somewhere on it. That plays a factor into the into the management. And it was no different on the Bennett farm. Um, I think it was pretty early on whenever we looked. I, I think the first night, immediately, as soon as we got the map, they brought out the Hunt Terra map and we started looking it over. It's like, there's a clear cut. Okay clear cut there was there was a pine plantation there at some point okay oh there's a pine plantation there that's looks like it's already mature closed canopy so what's that look like what are those pines and immediately is is loblollies okay big shocker that's what a lot of them are um, that we see just because it's such a popular pine tree down south and so we they, had they lo- grow so rapidly we had <laughs> loblolly pine plantation and we had uh, loblolly pine clear cut basically so um definitely two completely different scenarios and as you see later in the film um, a drastic difference between the two Um, and and that's kind of the difference between it really comes down to the difference between sunlight on the forest floor 
Yeah. And, and it did not take long getting into that pine plantation to see that. And they knew it. Like, Kyle, we, we met Kyle at QDMA National Convention last year. Um, he listened to the presentation. He had, he had known us beforehand. Um, but, like, we got to physically meet with him, talk with him about the property. Um, and that's what, you know, he made, he made mention of it is the, the pine plantations. Um, so from, from that convention, we, you know, became friends, continued to talk, um, and then went down for a consultation. But his dad was a, was a wildlife major in college, um, now owns a forestry company. So is very well versed in the aspects of forestry, um, and its relationship to wildlife management and how species are going to react to it. Um, so he sees that honestly on a daily basis, but their struggle at this time is finding and having the timber market in a place or to a point where they can feasibly go in and harvest those logs. The mills just won't take it at this time. Yeah. Or the ground itself in some areas isn't suitable. Like It never dries out down there enough for equipment to be able to get in. So they, they're fighting this and, and trying to find that balance between do we just come in, clear cut it, or, and not take a, a great um, profit on the logs to increase the wildlife habitat and just say we're clear cutting portions of this and thinning other portions of this large pine plantation that hasn't seen either one. Um, what, what do we do? What's your suggestions that we find ourselves in this predicament almost because the film shows it just as clear as day when when you i think there's a shot of you walking through it with with your boots um like it's just pine needles that's it there's a, a no. few sprigs of a sweet gum which isn't any value i think they're in the film there's one sprig of um japanese honeysuckle that you see but beyond that there's no light there and there is no cover and no forage so it's 40 acres of really just a desert no. They don't go in it, so it's kind of safe. But from a habitat uh, standpoint, vegetation standpoint, it's very low quality for wildlife. The deer that are in there have to venture out to get any sort of have to. forage or benefit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so with that being said, and I think to take notice of that throughout much of the South, because much of the South has this um, aspect to it, is you see pine plantations, but that doesn't automatically mean that there's good quality habitat in there. A managed pine plantation that has been thinned or that we see later on the film, one that's been clear cut offers so much more than that standing pine plantation. And you can almost compare that to a closed canopy forest. Ones that are thinned or have been managed with TSI are much better off in the, the benefit, the byproduct of that work, than ones that aren't. It's it's very much a, a the simple fact of is it closed canopy or not? If it's closed yeah. canopy, it's time for harvest of some sort, um, and and then as you thin it, it's they're going to start growing because they're going to grow a little faster. And I always think of I don't know if I think we shared it on our page, but the difference of the growth rings of a pine yes. that was like it showed growing, 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 and then you could tell immediately where there was a thinned area or it had thinned around it. And so it grew a lot faster, and then it kind of closed back up, and then there was another thinning, mm-hmm. and, and that's just a they just grow a lot faster when they don't have as much competition, and uh, and so it, it's just kind of a good rule of okay, it's closed canopy, it's time for a harvest, 
And then as those trees grow up, okay, it's almost closed canopy again. It's time for another harvest. Mm-hmm. And you get to a point where the last harvest is the clear cut and right. where they cut the rest and then they start all over. Yep, refresh it. Refresh it. And so it's hit the reset button. And uh, I think that was a, a good example when you compare the two of the amount of benefit between the two. We didn't jump a deer. We didn't see a deer track. Of course, no. it hard to, it'd be hard for a deer to leave a deer track in five inches of, of <laughs> pine needles. Pine needle duff. Um, <laughs> and there's no moisture. It's just right. dust underneath that. So, um, And then you go to the other side, and as soon as we got out of the truck, we start jumping deer, and like, there's deer tracks. And there's not only deer tracks, but that's where you're seeing turkeys because there's good nesting habitat there. There's a lot more rabbits and smaller game around those clear cuts just because there's so much more cover and food available yeah i mean it was it was night and day it was left and right like different sides of the spectrum when it came to wildlife and the habitat those areas offered so as you would as (laughs) as you would expect a recommendation there was to as soon as possible and then, you know, there's a monetary aspect to this that, that needs to be considered. And we can make a recommendation from a habitat standpoint, but honestly, when it comes to that monetary aspect of timber value, what you want to get out of that, that needs to be a landowner decision. You know, do I not get as much for this timber right now because the, the mills won't take it? Or what do I do? We leave that to the landowner to make that decision of the monetary aspect of things. But we will say at any point we, you want to cut or you want to have equipment in here, this is what you should do. X is what you should do. Um, and that was thinning m- most of that um, area and then having clear cuts within it because, again, that next little scene we see, that clear cut teeming with wildlife. And I think we ought to jump into that because that area, that clear cut that they had done was 20 acres. And what are you looking at me like that for? You change your wording. The, oh, I didn't say dive on in. Oh, you said it. Was that just a uh, a try? Uh, you said jump on in. I'm like, oh, man, jump on he, in. He learned a new parade. <laughs> well, you're sitting over here looking at me. I'm like, what did I say? Like, I, I didn't think I, I thought I was on a roll, man. Yeah. You had me questioning it. No, I think it's totally it. Uh, and I, th- I think I know where you were going with that. Was you went from a 20 acre closed canopy pine plantation to a 20 acre clear cut with all kinds of cover Mm -hmm. but we go from big chunk to big chunk and one of the most important things for us is to break that up fragment that even more and say okay we have these big destination bedding areas with these clear cuts but let's break it down because there's some food plots where they're not seeing a lot of activity from the deer during daylight because they have such a long ways to go from the clear cut to those food plots so trying to break that up, fragment it down to where you have deer in all in these other little bedding thickets throughout the farm. During the rut, you get this transition of bucks checking each one of these bedding thickets and clear cuts, and they're always moving trying to find a receptive doe because they have a lot more room and a lot more places to hide from those pesky bucks. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm going to go a, a little separate direction Um from that but totally agree on that like overall overall the property itself right it needs to be even broken up and fragmented more dispersed beyond these just large areas of really good or or honestly poor habitat but in that pine plantation that had not been thinned or anything or overall let's imagine from a 
monetary and habitat standpoint, if we thin some of it, we leave some timber still still standing, right? It's not a complete clear cut. It's not a complete, you know, wipe out, let's just restart. But if we thin a large portion of it, let's just say 30 acres, and the mills, you know, they take it, they're not going to pay that much for it right now, but we get, honestly, the best of both worlds. We get a thin timber stand, which it needed it. It was time. Um, that was like, I think they said 15 years or so it, it was um, had been planted. So that 14, 15, 16 years is about when they get thinned, typically that, fir- that first thinning. So it was ready for that. We can improve it. But then we're also improving the wildlife habitat as well because immediately you're getting a, a flush of vegetation because you're getting more light to the ground before those canopies of the pines that are thinned begin to close in years down the road. So, okay, we improve the quality of habitat. We get a little bit of money in the pocket, not as much as if we maybe would have left it, but overall the habitat's improved and we can still go to another area within that 40 acre section and clear cut that. So we're really dispersing and and getting some money back, but dispersing and improving habitat within that block. And that, like I said, leads us into that other clear cut, the massive one, the 20 acre one that has that beautiful drone shot. And you can see like the taller, older growth stuff surrounding it. Um, But you just see how vast and and big that is. Like that's a lot of area um, for, for deer to be able to bed down in and move and chase does and browse and feed and keep fawns safe, which is all great. But when it comes to actually hunting it and implementing a hunting strategy, then it becomes a little bit tough. Um, but with out getting to, without getting into that too deep right now, when it comes to habitat type, man, that was beautiful. Yeah. All native too. You saw some pines in there in some of the clips. But that was just natural regeneration. Well, not all of it was native. There were a few species a, a that few, it, right that had came in, but nothing that, was planted back no, there. No, there wasn't anything planted. Like we saw bushy blue stem, and of course mm-hmm. there was a broom sedge, and uh, there were some willows. Quite a few a density of, of of type of. I think it's a winter willow, is what his dad is what they called were it. calling it. Yep. Yeah, um, and then there was just a bunch of other like ragweed and oh yeah, uh, all kinds of. Greenbrier was in there. Great beneficial stuff. And so it was just a, a really cool comparison because before that was clear cut, it looked just like the other one. Just like it. And so it's just, you, you think of how quickly nature can change. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once again, you think of how, how slowly nature can change. When you look it at the clear, or <laughs> when you look at the, when you look at the uh, closed canopy pine plantation that we, talked about earlier and it just it set like that for a long time before mm-hmm. it ever changed yeah um and then you cut it and all of a sudden it's just this huge explosion and that's that's the power of disturbance and and power that's of what, sunlight and that's where the whole rotation of prescribed fire or grazing and all that stuff can help change it and add more diversity and do all kinds of other beneficial things so mm-hmm. one thing that we didn't talk about early on in this uh podcast was the initial startup it was it's kind of a piggyback off of last week's podcast when we talked about the importance of having a plan and Great knowing point. what your uh what your plan of attack is and e- even for us when we're consulting um it's there's always got to be a plan of attack and understanding kind of what the goals are what the mission is what the 
um, equipment situation is, what they're, what basically how much they can pour into it, how much time they have. And so that always comes down to having a plan and understanding their plan and combining that with our plan and, and meeting, meeting their goals in the middle. And so first thing you saw us gathered around a hunt terror map talking about and trying to understand the, the plan, the foundation for that property and see where we need to go from there so they can meet their goals. Yeah. And they had, like when we meet with landowners, these two, Kyle and his dad, were on a great track. You know, they have done the, the for his dad, they have been through college um, studying this stuff. And Kyle is well-versed and follows along with uh, QDMA, MSU Deer Lab, um, Gamekeeper stuff. Like, he's very intelligent, um, and they had a great track uh, of what they wanted to achieve on, on the property. Um, and it's... I, we were there to support that and, and basically provide more confidence. That, yeah, you guys are in definitely in the right direction. Um, but here's a few tweaks. Here's a few recommendations. So honestly, your habitat's good. It's going in the right direction. You have the great mindset. But how can we take that habitat type and make it into a better hunting property? Yeah. And, and, and that honestly is, our, is a big part of what we do. Like in this podcast, we talk about habitat. I would say 80% of the time. But when we're in the field on a property, we not only have to talk about habitat, but we have to talk about the orientation of that habitat for a landowner to be successful during the fall or during the spring. Whatever their goals are, it has to be set up in a manner so not only do these bucks or, or these long beards show up on a trail camera, they, they know they're out there, but we want them to be successful in harvesting them too. And that's where our recommendations for this property, uh, I think, really came in and helped Kyle and his dad um, because it was a redistribution of the habitat types that they already had on the property and and putting them in places and suggesting these mini bedding areas spread throughout to get deer out of these this large clear cut because that was a concentration. I mean, when we were filming, um, we stepped in there and deer jumped. I mean, we and we were honestly pretty much on the edge. Well, when we, were we drove by, parked, got out, got and we're camera talking. gear, yeah. talking, doing all that stuff, and then as soon as we stepped in, that's when they ran off. And and that's the, a huge important factor is if we had just continued to drive by or walk by and never actually stepped foot in there, they never would have gotten up. But really, in essence, we were within forty yards of those deer, fifty yards of those deer the entire time as we were getting out of the truck, yep. doing this and that. But they had the right cover to feel secure still until we we got into that bubble and they're like, okay, they're in this cover with us. We need to get out. It's kind of like the times whenever you're you're out scouting for deer before season starts up and you're driving down the, gra- driving down the gravel road and you're like, oh, there's a deer. Mm-hmm. And it's as long as you keep driving, they keep, don't keep usually Keep those wheels spook. turning. <laughs> but as soon as you stop, it's like, go, oh, go, 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 and the deer run off. And so – um, that's kind of how it was on that one is as long as we were driving or, or stopped, we were fine. But as soon as mm-hmm. we stepped into it, that's when they got out of there. That's how safe they felt. It was almost yeah. like jumping rabbits out of brush piles. Yeah, sure was. Um, and I think I'll, I'll kind of add to that is Colin's dad definitely understood the plan and already had the plan in mind for we need to make changes to the timber. We need mm-hmm. to, we need to get more early successional habitat 
early successional plants. And maintain uh, it with fire. They just haven't had the weather. Fire. But they've been handicapped because they can't. They don't have a great uh, timber market. Yep. And then they also don't have a. Uh, they're a little bit concerned with some of the burning in the in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because of neighbors. So, uh, and that kind of that could bring up an interesting question for somebody saying, okay, well, I don't have a good timber value. There are there's no timber market in my area, and I can't find a trustworthy logger or whatever. What can I do? And that's mm-hmm. where it comes down to, well, if you're really ambitious, maybe you need to go and drop some of those trees yourself. Or maybe right. um, you need to find another way to get sunlight to the forest floor or find something. And so that's where I would almost, if I'm in that situation, I would probably go in and find the pines or the trees that aren't going to provide any value when that harvest happens and go ahead and remove them from the from the equation. Correct. Correct. And, and that would be something that, that you could do. Um, just and to, everyone can find that in, in any forest stand. You can find some trees that don't need to be there. You just got to be educated on and, and be able to identify those those trees. And it's kind of the survival of the fittest, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, when you look at kind of, I, let's go back in history and look at all the predators that followed buffalo and, and the groups of um, of animals. Is They didn't really predate on the healthy ones. They always picked off the weaklings, and that's what you're basically doing when you go in a timber stand is you're picking out the weaklings, the ones that are stressed, the ones that um, are are not as healthy and aren't going to ever be, since they are so stressed, they're never going to be what the others can, so you're just removing them from the equation. And in those specific sites, like whether it might be a north face, uh, north north slope, whatever it may be, they're, they're just not producing or, or – um, growing at the at the same rate, they're inferior tree. They could be the same age as the trees that you're saying. Okay, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna stay, but these ones are thirty years and really crappy. Just like people, some of them stop at five two <laughs> or. Six oh, I was foot. like, oh my gosh, where are you going with this? <laughs> some people just top out at different places. So yeah. Uh, yeah, some people stop at like five five, right, Matt? I am five nine. <laughs> Thank you. You have like one inch on me, and he's, and he's gonna take that to his grave. One inch. I'm taller. I got three. I'm a man. Three numbers associated with my height. <laughs> five ten. One oh, zero. One zero. <laughs> I'm a triple digit, man. Yeah. Wow. Oh gosh. It's confidence so, issue. Yeah. Not on this end. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, that's kind of how it looks with, and and that brings up another uh, another question that we get asked a lot. I'm five I can't nine. burn. I can't burn. What can I do? How can I get more um, early successional? Or how can I get more cover? And uh, that's kind of comes with a couple of different situations. Let's say you're in timber. Um, you need to do the, just what we mentioned. You need to find the species that aren't providing any value or won't in the future, or they're just species that are, are there's too many stems per acre. Um, so let's just use hickories. There's way too many hickories. Go in and remove those. And you can still keep some of the best-looking ones in the sure. bunch just because they're, they have a place as well. They're native to the area. So you're going to remove uh, a large portion of those. You're going to open up the canopy. And then you ask, well, what about the leaf litter? Well, as long as sunlight's getting through, that will help. Mm-hmm. But one way you can speed that up is whether you're just trying to go in there and blow out leaf with a backpack blow and blow those leaves out, you're trying to speed it up. The, the reason we like fire is it helps with nutrient cycling, but it also helps speed the process up 
of getting sunlight to the forest floor and kind of giving it a boost of energy to where it can grow a lot faster. And removing some other species that are honestly simply too tough to control with a, a chainsaw. It might be like a little sapling and there's a bunch of them in a timber stand and you can't, like that's just not practical. Or Rip it's a, a non-native species that's yeah. not adapted to fire. It's like bush honeysuckle or mm-hmm. things like that to where a fire will certainly knock that stuff back. Yeah. And so and that's why fire is a great tool. But this is trying to answer the question of those guys that say that their state doesn't allow them to burn or they're in a place where they can't burn. How can they get more habitat or more early successional habitat, other beneficial species on the forest floor? Yes. So removing the canopy um, and then removing whatever else is in the area that's it, that's out competing what you want. Um, and, that, and that's basically how you could do it. When it comes to fields... Um, it's going to be, uh, let's say you've got tur- some sort of turf grass, fescue, smooth brome, bahia, whatever it is. You're just basically spraying that out and letting that wilt away. Uh, since you're not burning, it's just going to take a little bit longer, but it will still happen. Yep. And so that's kind of how you um, that's how you take care of it. Now, it, it, it's just a sp- sped up process when you involve fire. But anyway... Um, and fire can also, as we said before, can help add diversity to it. But if you don't have that option, maybe grazing is an option for you to help add some diversity. Um, just do it at different times under a very controlled method, and, and you can add diversity to your place. Mm-hmm. So. There's a lot of studies. And I, I, cattle, we'll, we'll, we will get there, um, but it's definitely an underutilized management tool um, to disturb the soil excuse me, to disturb the habitat in a practical native sense, natural sense. Um, so we will get into that um, in other podcasts. But another big thing on the Bennett property there is increasing the amount of edge on the property. They have a lot of different habitat types. We talked about the old growth timber. We talked about the, the clear cut, the pine plantation, the thin pines. Um, they've got food plots spread throughout. They've got a great road system. Um, but they, with, with that, that means that they have the opportunity to increase the amount of edge because there is so much edge on the property. But make that habitat along those edges where we know deer like to spend a lot of time, turkeys like to spend a lot of time, we can make that more beneficial. Instead of having just a hard edge from that old growth timber to the edge of a food plot, which many of them had, we can kind of stair step it down and increase that edge. And the, and the, the Bennett's talked about their high deer numbers um, on the property and from their food plot exclusion cages, it was very evident that there was a lot of deer on this property. A lot of deer or there's not a lot of food. Right. Both probably a instances, little of both. Probably a little of both. Um, so with that being said, we can increase the amount of forage and, and basically reduce some browse pressure on the food plots by increasing the amount of edge around food plots and throughout the rest of the property. That's a huge benefit to them from a habitat standpoint as well as a hunting standpoint. Oh, and it absolutely helps solve one of the one of the issues that they're having on that place is less, there's not a lot of daylight activity, uh, especially not from the mature deer. So making those hard edges softer. And you, when you said stair step, think of um, you have two two stories in a building or three stories in a building, and 
you make one step in between those stories. That's a big leap. But if you can stair-step that down to where there's a lot of steps in between by adding more shrubby species, young timber, on down to native grasses, all over the food plot to where there's just multiple steps from one habitat to the next. That's how you can really improve um, the edge, soften it up, and, and allow deer to feel more comfortable on your farm. How I, Here's a question I want people to, to consider, I guess, is when you think of a staging area on your farm, where is that staging area at? In most places, I would... I would not suggest, but I would think that most people are thinking of a spot in the timber just outside of a food plot. They, from a stand, can't see the deer, but they kind of hear them back there before, um, you know, that last bit of light. They hear them, you know, they might catch a glimpse of an antler or an ear or a tail flick, whatever it may be, but the deer just kind of hold up back there off the edge of the food plot. If you stair step that down and provide cover and forage outside of the timber as a shrub, as a grass, I guarantee you that staging area will not be back in the timber. They're going to move out to that edge, work in that. You're going to have more of a visible view. And if you hunt it appropriately, set it up appropriately, you might be able to harvest those deer that are staging up in these edge areas versus in the food plots if it's done correctly. And and here's how one of the important things of doing it correctly is – and this is, uh, so let's just say we're improving the edge, we're softening up the edge. So we have closed canopy forest to food plot. There is a drastic 90 degree change. Hard edge. You have a very hard edge. How can we improve that? Let's look at it and say, okay, there's a lot of, and, and keep this in mind. And everybody, there's going to be a light bulb because you're going to think about the years where you didn't get a lot of rain. And you're going to think about your food plots. And underneath the drip line of those trees, you didn't see a lot of great production out of your food plot. It kind of looked like a dud. And you're like, how can I how can I change that? Like I planted it all the way to the edge, but ain't nothing growing. And you have trees that are taking the nutrients from the food plot. And soil moisture. And yeah. so, okay, how can we change that? Well, let's look around that 10 yards, 20 yards around a food plot and say, okay, let's cut the trees that don't provide any value. What do you What do you know? We're going back to that. I don't. Uh, I, I don't get. I don't get scared of cutting trees. I don't either. Now, if it's big white oaks that are going to provide a lot of money and income, yeah, I, I would get a little scared. Possible acorns, right? But when it comes to junky trees, I don't. I I have a, I have a way a, a much better role for them, and that's laying on the ground. Yeah. So. Um, let's look at all the trees in that 20-acre ring around these tree or uh, food plots. 20 foot wide. 20 foot. Yep. Or, yeah, or 20, 20 yards. Foot, or 20, 20 yards is what I said. Um, but keep in mind, I like that 10 to 15-yard line. And you're going to edge feather this. And this is the difference between steering and edge feathering. A lot of times your edge feathering is where you're cutting perpendicular with the edge of the food plot. So some are going, let's just say the food plot runs north and south of the edge. You're cutting some that are dropping east and west. And so deer and animals can move right through those treetops out of the food plot. But if you're in an area to where you're wanting to try to bring the deer a little closer to you, maybe drop those trees, every couple of trees, drop them to where they run parallel instead of perpendicular with the edge of the food plot to where it almost builds a fence, a natural fence. And you can help... Bring steer those steer those deer to where they come closer to your stand and come into range. That's how you can do it. it you're making a bottleneck. 
You're increasing all you do. You're making these deer come out to the edge earlier on and moving past your stand. That's it. Why not do it? I don't don't get it. Did you hear across the nation all those chainsaws just rev up right at once? Yeah, yeah. I I, how many times do, have you hunted a food plot or heard somebody say, "Yeah, I hunted a food plot," and they always they came out in the other end. This is a yeah. way you can change that. Now, one thing I will add while I'm thinking of it, because this is something that's very exciting to us, um, and it's very and it's something that we're going to keep building on and keep doing and keep tweaking, just because it's something that's so beneficial to a multitude of species. Um, and frankly, there's not a whole lot of people talking about this or doing it at all. So it's important for us to get this information out there because. As I said, it's so beneficial to a multitude of species. But by doing this edge feathering, these tip, different types of techniques for edge feathering, is you can now bring the deer closer to the closer to your stand if done correctly. But here's the kicker: when you're talking about those staging areas, a lot of times when those deer are staging up somewhere, especially on the edge of the food plot, and they're just standing back, what do you think they're doing? A lot of times they're trying to scent check it. The wind's not in their favor. They're looking to see what's out in the food plot. But by adding this amount of cover and getting regrowth, you start throwing up more of a screen to where mm-hmm. deer have to come to the food plot, have to come out to see what's in it. How many hunting stories, I guess, when we're on a property, talk about, I, my, I guess my mind goes back to uh, Casey Jones and his brother. Um, they had just put in a brand new food plot in an area, and they had grunted or rattled, I believe it was, and, and the buck was coming up the hill to this ridgetop food plot. But then all of a sudden, before it got to the food plot, just stopped. Listen, listen, they grunted at it again. Instead of coming all the way out to the food plot, it stayed in the timber below the, the ridge line and worked itself almost to within range, um, but just never came out to the food plot. Because it didn't have to. It could see all the way across the food plot. It's like, there's not a doe up there. There's not a buck up there I need to beat up. Why am I going and, and basically exposing myself um, all the way out in the wide open? Why, why am I doing that? I can't see it. Whereas in this situation, if, if the Bennett's or if you at home want to increase the areas around your food plots and make them more huntable um, and increase the habitat, Make a screen, edge feather it, so they have to be basically commit all the way out to that food plot and come in. Oh, and, and we're just and getting started. It. Yeah. So then, how else can you add to it? Well, you, you're edge feathering 10, 15, maybe 20 yards in the timber line. But if you want to, you can even take that a little further into the timber and go a little less aggressive. Yep. But now let's work our way into the food plot. How can we add more edge? This is where I, I, I'm really excited because we're working with Pure Air Natives, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, is, uh, and we're trying to get some blends together that are, is going to be an edge habitat, species, blend, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to plant these on the first 5 to 10 yards in a food plot to where we didn't get great production out of our, um, out of food, our plot. food plots anyway. But now we have these species that are adapted to this, these drier soils. Partial uh, shade. Could be partial shade. Could be um, whatever it is. We're going to have a couple different of these blends. But it's going to be set up to where we plant that around that r- ring of the food plot to where now we have even more cover because we're going to add some grasses that are going to grow chest high. 
There's going to be a lot of forbs that are going to be great forage during the summer months, but they're also going to be great seed producers for quail and rabbits and mm-hmm. be great cover for those species to where we have more of them around the food plots to where hopefully their populations, if we do have predators, we have as we go back to our Is the Coyote Really to Blame yeah. podcast, where we're trying to increase the amount of small um, game on our farms. This is a way to do it. It's basically something that's been extremely successful on the ag side with the buffer strips and all the CP33 um, government contracts where they're trying to fight erosion and fight um, and help the pollinator species. Mm -hmm. This is doing it on a food plot. And so we can do the same thing. We can take something very successful, shrink it down, and make it perfect for us. And improve. Here it is for you guys that are like, ah, I just want to kill good deer. Here it is. You can get deer moving during daylight hours more um, during Way hunting more season. more consistently with this type of habitat in and around areas that you want to concentrate deer in. If you're going to basically hunt these areas because you got a lot of does coming in, make sure when a buck does come and approach a food plot that he commits all the way in. There, I mean, it, if it's a matter of you being successful or not um, – I, I would much rather be successful and, and harvesting a buck every single year. So I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do the work and I'm going to improve the edges of my food plot because I want to see that buck and I want him to have to commit all the way to that plot and offer a shot. So let's talk about entry and exit to stand with this layout. We've done edge feathering, aggressive right on the edge of the food plot. Now there's still going to be a few trees that were great trees that we're going to leave, but a lot of the others that aren't providing any value, they're removed. So we may have... 10% canopy in this whole little strip where we've yep. edge feathered. We may have 30% canopy just a little further into your main timber stand. And then, um, of course, then it goes to hopefully, canopy. Not, let's in not say, cases. it would say, <laughs> yeah, it'd go to full canopy, but hopefully it's more like a 70% um, or whatever it is in your, your native habitat there. But, um, and then you go to native grasses, and then so, and in the mix of that, you have some shrubby species, or you have some young forest, and so you have this thirty-yard strip that's really thick. You have a lot of growth to where if you're on one side of it, if let's say you're on the east side, and there's something on the west side, you shouldn't be able to see each other real well. So when you're walking into your stands, you can walk on the inside because there shouldn't be any deer in the food plot. Let's say you're going in in the afternoon. Shouldn't be any deer in the food plot, so you walk in on the inside along the edge of the food plot, climb into your stand. You're up there. Undetected. Undetected. Deer come out into the food plot. It gets dark. You can now slide down and slip and walk on the other side of that whole 30-yard strip to where they shouldn't be able to see you walking out. And that is something that can be game-changing for you on your farm. So really think about this setup. You're improving habitat, and you're also improving your success rate by having more deer during daylight hours, but improving your access to your stands. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a really sharp listener out there saying, well, you guys always talk about, like, uh, you know, getting sunlight to the forest floor and letting the natives flourish. Why, why are you trying to plant something? Why are you having mixes in these areas? Well, sometimes um, if you have a food plot and you're coming from the outside in, um, maybe you don't have the topography at that, that portion um, to be able to cut and, and leave an, a nice edge. 
Um, if you have it go into your food plot some, less than the amount of acres you're planting, which is totally fine too, um, you're, you've probably used herbicide in that area. And you might have um, been killing over time after planting many years some of the natives there. So you're not going to get that flush um, and of vegetation. And there's a good chance that in, in a lot of cases that you may not have any natives oh, come up anyway. Very, very true. So it's really, if you... Or, or you talk about field. it old field management to where sometimes you think, well, if I just spray out this, I'm going to have natives come back. That really depends on the site. And so site dependent, yeah. you want to um, understand that just because you spray out some non-native doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a beautiful field of native grasses and wildflowers. So Not keep that case. in mind. So in a food plot standpoint, herbicide has been used or plowing and disking has been used. So there's a good chance that there's not a native seed bed um, of native grasses and wildflowers that are going to just come up. Or you're hunting the edge of a crop field and and that farmer has used, has been disking or using herbicides as well. So, you know, getting permission to to do these type of work around the edges, um, keep that in mind. That's why, you know, planting in this instance um, is going to be, very beneficial and in many cases many sites um necessary so and i think of i think of when whenever we add all these uh native grasses and wildflowers and how beneficial they are going to be to pollinators let's just talk about that yes when we go in and we look at our food plots during the summer and the fall plots there's always bees flying around and we have to terminate it to get ready for the next crop this gives them something else to take advantage of is mm-hmm. there'll be plenty of stuff blooming and pollinating cool. um, around this in this in this buffer zone so and all types of pollinators and other insects like not to mention the the fact that that's food for for turkeys that's food for quail like all of this stuff works together um, and, and is extremely beneficial for basically beyond just food plot species and and better uh, pollination like it, it all works together mother what's nature that, is an amazing what, thing what's it great for oh it's great for bees it's great for animals it's great for birds it's great for the soil it's great for the water and and the erosion um it's like and try, it try makes, and dispute this and just it try makes, it and <laughs> make, yeah what is it that uh i see the guy that says uh um he basically sets up a booth on college campuses and he says uh something like let's just say gun control is bad or, yeah, gun control is bad. Um, change my mind. That's what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Change yeah. my mind. And change this, change this my stuff mind is, about edge habitat. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Edge habitat Dude, is, dare, yeah. is uh, amazing. Change my mind. Right. Um, and so this is just one of those things. That, and, and the last thing, I mentioned all the animal benefits in the soil and water, but it's also way more beneficial to the hunter in, in being more successful. So change my mind. Tell me I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> Come anyway. bro. So, and that's just something that I think is uh, amazing, and hopefully more people start doing this because planting these natives in the edge of a food plot where you aren't getting great yield most likely anyway. It takes a lot of rain. Hopefully um, you're getting that rain. But if you're in a drought year, I I almost bet you if it's next to tall, mature trees, you're not having great yield. Everyone can can draw back to a memory of a, crappy year of rain and remember the edge of their food pots and sitting there scratching their head like man this just stinks the center of it's good but all the edges all i get i get weeds over here yeah and and when you look at the root system of a native grass and wildflowers versus an annual or a turf grass it's just 
there's a completely different night and day. Um, I mean, we're talking inches to feet, and to where if we do that, we establish these native grasses and wildflowers that have feet of a root system, even though you're having a drought year, they're probably still going to do pretty doggone good. They're like because they're hashtag, adapted to that. Hashtag winning. And so that's why uh, we're encouraging you guys to consider this in, as you begin to move forward in your habitat land management. You know what? We just really, really went off on a really went on, off. A but that's something we're really that's new, uh, new techniques that we haven't talked about. You know, um, you know what you did, Adam? No, don't say that word. Don't, don't say that say phrase. It. Don't say <laughs> it. Um, he opened up a can of worms. He so, did it. Um, we need to talk about Granny's Corner. Seen, seen like three of this film. That was a great thing that we we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and we're we're tying that in now. Is Granny's Corner is a uh, twenty acres, part of a big cattle farm, but it doesn't. The big cattle farm doesn't play into anything other than they know it's the same landowner. They really only manage and hunt this twenty acres. Yes, and I said a line in that to where some of the the guys that hunt little little acreage, little chunks of ground, those are the guys that really manicure every piece, every tree of their farm because they don't manage in acres they manage in feet and Square so footage. sometimes i will say it props to you guys that manage the smaller properties um maybe it motivates you, you guys are not on the bigger forgotten. properties you guys yeah. are not forgotten and you certainly don't get a turned up nose from us because you guys are doing all kinds of work and even though you're hunting a smaller property you're pouring your heart and soul into it and and yeah. really making some huge improvements you're doing the best you can on the smaller properties to where you have better habitat than a lot of these guys, yeah. uh, than some of the guys with big tracks. Nor should you be underestimating the potential that can come from managing square footage on on properties of that size. I think when whenever you look at a buck who's getting really pressured, he shrinks down his home range to and sm- sizes that people it would would shock them. And so, if you have that piece that is like the best in the neighborhood, that's unpressured, to where you've hunted it very very cautiously yeah. to where you maneuver around you never bump deer you have to where your neighbor let's say he's managing a thousand acres or two thousand acres or three thousand acres but you have 20 that's like where you do not disturb it you can own the deer during the pressure time of the year so mm-hmm. that's definitely something to consider and and uh so hats off to you guys on managing the small properties we feel you and uh we definitely tip our caps to you because you're doing some good work out there now in the in the film we talked about so the first film we talked about tall fescue and kind of eliminating it. Second film, as you guys saw, is we're eliminating it now. Implementing that knowledge that was shown in film one and talked about. And so we are spraying out tall fescue or Matt is spraying yep. out tall fescue. Not me, landowner Matt. Landowner Matt. Spraying out tall fescue um, during March here in here in missouri now it could be february in the south or it could be april in the north it really depends on your area but what you're looking for is green non-native cool season grass such as tall fescue or orchard grass things like that or smooth brome or smooth brome and they're green and all the native grasses and forbs are dormant yes and so you're going in two quarts per acre of glyphosate and you're spraying it out and basically you're killing it and letting nature start to replace it um to speed up that process you can burn 
So you're going to spray it when it's the only thing green. You're going to let it die in a couple of weeks, three weeks, and you get you can go back and burn it. Um, and then you're just getting a huge flush. We did this on a couple of places, and it was the first year, of course, summer annuals of ragweed. That was just ragweed, ragweed everywhere. It's so beneficial. You guys know how much we love ragweed. And so um, – and, and switchgrass and little blue in some areas, ending yeah. grass. It was, it Golden was a little rod. bit shorter in some areas just because it takes a little bit time, more time to develop, but yeah. it was still there, still coming back. And that's one of those things that if you're in a crop field, if that happened, it, it was a crop field converted to pasture, you may have to plant the seeds um, if they've been killed out. So definitely a, uh, you saw Matt knocking it out and uh, taking care of business and changing the habitat on Granny's Corner. 20-acre piece. I'm excited to follow along in that project um, just to see how – because it's one of those things. It's like people turn up their nose at small acreage. We all want big ground. Who doesn't? But the the reality of it is that uh, you have to – that if that's the best you have, you're going to manage it the best you can. And so Matt is out there grinding, and he's changing – 20 acres at granny's corner yeah and again cattle country but still removing the fescue and realizing there's more to this ground there's more to this 20 acres than what it is right now and if there's cattle farmers out there listening to us or guys that are hunters and cattle farmers and they think we're crazy spraying out the fescue it definitely has a place sure but it doesn't have a place in areas that aren't getting grazed nope and i'm trying to make it as beneficial as i can for the wildlife has no place nope um the cattle farmer in me still has a little bit of love for tall fescue, but the Here? wildlife side of me says not in my house, not on these acres. So, anyway, not on Granny's I think corner. That pretty well. Oh, oh, wait, oh! Wait, 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 wait. And then we have the last two hunts. <laughs> so Mississippi uh, didn't work out for us. We had a, a close encounter on yeah. the last day. Didn't get it done. It reminded us of of those tough days in Missouri last season. Right. Um, we had a couple of down hunts. Last um, year, that second week of Missouri season was pretty tough. Um, I think we and we took been our dads. Tough if we had a gun that worked. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a uh, a goal of mine last year to take my granddad's double barrel um, and harvest some turkeys here in Missouri with that, and it misfired twice. Actually, on the same group of three gobblers that um, I that we were hunting the last day, um, it was three. You said twice. I misfired. It misfired twice. Three times. Twice on one hunt. Twice on one hunt, right. Okay. So we got on these birds three, three times. times. Four yeah. times. Yeah. The last day was the fourth, and, and we, we killed the one. Um, but obviously, as you saw, he, he flew down and did not like the setup, the scenario. Um, and it was just last day, let's get this bird killed. And I, I don't With know how. A little bit of miscommunication. Yeah. And, and that's okay. But, like, I don't it know how. Fun you managed to you can hear the boom boom like did did you aim the second time i don't think so did you aim the first time i don't it was like (laughs) i'm trying to shoot like oh my gosh this bird landed he took two steps he turned around something is wrong matt shoot him you're on point why isn't he shooting this bird's leaving boom boom why are you still not shooting? I was and aiming so, as the bird's running and dodging your shot. He wasn't really running too hard. Watch the footage. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I mean, hey, it was it was fun. And we then, killed And him. then Shoeless Joe Jackson went yeah. out and snuck up on a bird. Um, Sometimes. That, that, to me, that was kind of the, you know, growing up, I coyoted a lot of birds. 
Um, and this was one of them kind of going back to the roots. I love to sit down against a tree, call them up, put them in my face, let them mark the decoys. That's awesome. But sometimes you got to go back to your roots and coyote a bird, especially on the last day, especially on a bird that's not cooperated real well. And, you know, I'm not going to call that bird in. He's got hens with him. So let's coyote him. You and, like you call it coyoting here. And when I was growing up, there's there's birds back home. Um, we got the phrase, sometimes you can't call a bird in, but you can crawl them in. And yeah. that's exactly what happened. And growing up, too, it was some of those birds. You just had to crawl them in. You just had to get, basically understand where they were, the topography, and outsmart them that way. And that's exactly what happened. And that happened to be a giant bird. Great oh, bird. Two years in a row killed a really, really big bird on the last day of season yep. with some hooks. Hooks, heavy, great beard. It was an awesome hunt. Great way to end we, yeah, 2017 to end Missouri spring turkey season. So, anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed the second film. We sure enjoyed putting it together. And a special thank you to special Kyle thank you. Yeah. Bennett for having us down. Um, great I know family. We, great we, fun. His dad was a was a hoot. Um, great people. Long-term friends. Um, yes. I know we, we just ragged on him. The whole time we were down there, we were messing with him. Of course, and he was we giving always, it right back. We always mess with people, and uh, so it was just a really good time to hang out in camp, have great food, and hopefully they're going to join us in Missouri next year. We have a real special treat for them. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to show them the old Ozark way. <laughs> we're going to go to Glade Top Trail and oh, walk. Miles oh, and miles. So, no, we, we, we can't wait to have them up. And It'll be fun. Anyway, um, Matt... Would you rather? Gosh, yeah. So I was thinking while we were recording the podcast, would you rather have a farm in the in a premier premier neighborhood, Southern Iowa? Are you talking about premier as in habitat or premier as in like people good are killing neighbors. big deer and good neighbors? Okay. okay. Yep. But it's got bush honeysuckle. Or would you rather have a place in the Ozarks that has premier habitat? But doesn't really kill great deer. You know what I thought of immediately when you when you put that first one on me, Th- that scene from Ricky Bobby. He's like, "Don't you put that evil on me! Yeah. Don't you put that yeah. evil on me!" I hope me. you have two <laughs> handsome sons. <Yeah. laughs> Golly, um, I'm going. <clears throat> I'm going with probably. I like to work. Um, things that come easy don't last as long the fun enjoyment to me doesn't last as long um i'm a worker at heart i guess and i i don't mind the i don't i'm not fearful i don't shy away of of taking on the challenge of saying you know what other people might not be shooting great great big deer um but i'm giving it a whirl i'm trying it i like that i like that challenge i like that area um it's not always the big buck that that's going to um, makes so, me happy. So you're going to Southern Missouri when not fight bush honeysuckle, or are you going to fight bush honeysuckle? I'm not fighting bush honeysuckle. Okay, I'm not. But if someone wanted to give me that land, I'd take it. Well, if that sure. land came with a bobcat with a big grinder head on it, I think about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I'd and, say and a 50 fine. gallon drum, a, a herbicide. Sure. I'll rip it up. Give me some. Give me a drip. To, I'll go buy a drip torch, and yep. I'm gonna rip all this stuff down, and I'm gonna burn it, baby, burn it. So sure. Anyway, what you got for me? Uh unlike you, I was not thinking about a would you rather during the podcast, but um, let's let's think here. Would you rather 
Um, own land. Ooh, this is this is gonna be good. Would you rather own land in Maine, where the deer per square mile value is very very low, but they still kill some great deer because the hunting pressure is is lower. Um, deer get up to an older age class. Would you like to own land there, or would you like to own land, let's say, in Tennessee, where you're going to see a lot of deer, but typical age class of a buck is two and a half years old? Where is that Mason-Dixon at? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going south, baby. Tennessee, here I come. Load it up. Smoky Mountain Blues. Lo- load it up, y'all. We're going to sing Rocky Top. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be my theme song. You are Every two and a half year old buck I shoot. <laughs> Pating! <laughs> yeah. You know why folks on. Uh, it's I'm, I forget the words, but it's something like folks on Rocky Top get their corn from a jar. Yeah. Um, it's too rocky. But I'm going to Tennessee. Tennessee. Anyway. Woo, that was quite the podcast. We are over an hour. And we have covered everything from edge to hunting stories to which state would you rather be in. Absolutely. And and uh, that would you rather this week was brought to you by Deer, Deer Lab. Lab. Thank you, Deer Lab. I am I can't tell you how excited I am to get back in the Deer Lab software in a soon. Man, Actually, antlers are growing. Real soon. And start kind of breaking down and figuring out and I'll look at last year's data and say, Okay, let's let's get things going. And let's see what we can figure out. So check that out if you haven't yet, Deer Lab. I, I meant to call you earlier today and discuss a podcast topic that I think is really beneficial that may happen next week. Um, I'm not going to talk about it now, but stay tuned because next week is going to be really, really good. Um, I hope it's better than the last idea you sent me my way. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, my my invention? Yeah, Dude, yeah. that invention was like dynamite. Dynamite. <laughs> Anyhow, Dynamite. thanks for watching film number two. All right. Sounds good, guys. We'll catch you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.